we are on week four of our series on the gospel. You know, the entire uh, goal and, and heart of this is, is to uncover what is the good news. Why is this news so special? What does it change? What does it mean to us? Most importantly, why is it not good news to most of us anymore? Have we been in churches uh, our lives and, you know, we've received Jesus in a certain way? And somehow this news has just become watered down to us. Okay, and there's so much in the Bible that doesn't make sense to us, and the reason for that is, is that we have the wrong understanding of what the good news of Jesus is. And so, the first week, we just basically learned that, you know, the gospel's Jesus. It's the good news is what God accomplished in Jesus. Second week, we learned, you know, about some of the things that he accomplished, accomplished in one of Jesus' titles, his title of Messiah. In the, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 36, we see the summarization of the gospel. It says, and God has made Jesus both Messiah and Lord. And what's kind of packed in there is these three roles that Jesus is. He's Messiah, which means that he's basically the ultimate fulfillment of promises that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, all the way through the Old Testament. And there's all these different things about what the Messiah is going to do and accomplish He's going to, to do so many different things. And so in Jesus being the Messiah, he's not just coming to save. He's coming to accomplish this, this amazing host of things, not just for Israel, but for the entire world. The last week, week three, we learned that Jesus has a role of Lord or King. And the understanding of this is that uh, his role as King and Lord means that the implications of what he's doing as Messiah is not just for the Jews, it's for the entire world. And basically... As his role as Lord and King, there are three different, uh, how would you put that, three different news, three different segments of information that come with us understanding Jesus as Lord. Here's the first one, if you guys weren't here for last week. The first thing we learn, if Jesus is Lord, here's the first thing. We learn that we have family news. It means that God is expanding his family. You would not be part of the family unless you were Jewish. You would be on the outside looking in. So is that good news? Okay. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing news. It's this news that, that his family, how would you put this? The way into the family of God is being broadened. It's being made wider. And again, uh, if Jesus is not just the Lord of the Jews, if he's the Lord of everyone, then this is amazing news for us. Here's the second thing we see. So that we have world news. The world news is this. It means that in Jesus being uh, the Lord, the king of the world, it means that he plans not only to lead his people as Messiah, but also the entire world. It means that he's coming to establish a new reign in the same way that the Messiah was going to come create this new world where when God's in control, everything is done God's way. Everything that he wants to happen, happens. And, and so this kingdom that the Jews thought he was going to, Restore Jerusalem, and there's going to be these walls around Jerusalem. And inside the walls of Jerusalem, everything is perfect. There's peace, there's safety, there's love, there's life, there's justice. This, this kingdom, this world inside of Zion is perfect, but there's walls around it. But what the role of Jesus as king means is that the Messiah wasn't just going to create this perfect world for the Jews. His, his kingdom would not have walls that would keep anyone out. His kingdom would be one without walls. And so in his kingdom, anyone who wanted to come into this place where things were perfect, where there was healing and joy and peace and love and that death and, and hurt and loss and pain could not enter this place. If you wanted to live in a place like that, you could by simply choosing to. Is that good news to anybody? Okay. 
If you weren't here last week, we're starting this new thing. My heart in all this with the gospel is I really want us to see it, okay? It's, the gospel is like this, um, it's like a picture puzzle. I'm not sure if you guys have seen those. But there's those pictures you get where it just looks like a bunch of like white and black dots. You stare at it for a while, it just looks like dots. But if you look harder, all of a sudden this image starts to come out of these dots. And it starts to look like something familiar to you. That's what the gospel is. At first glance, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It just looks like a lot of noise. But when you really begin to dig into the scriptures, all of a sudden this beautiful image begins to come out of it. So what we're going to do here is when I'm teaching, I'm trying to get a point across. What I'll say is this. I'll say, see it. And your job is to say, see it. Got it? Got it. Okay. Please don't change it up, Devin. Come on. Okay. So here's the thing. Okay. I I want us to see this. What Jesus is doing is more than just his blood being shed for your sins. He's not just bringing you to himself. He's not just saying that you're not in trouble anymore. He's saying, I am healing the entire world. Do you want in on it? Man, you guys are Pentecostal today, let me tell you. (laughs) Amen, that's good. (laughs) You guys are all like, man, if we had the money, we'd be on spring break too, so leave us alone. (laughs) Here's the third thing about Jesus being Lord and King. It's cosmic news, meaning it means that God is staking claim not only to Zion, which again was the, the idea of the people of God, of the city of God, Jerusalem. He's not only claiming back his people, the Jews, and his city, Jerusalem. It means that God is staking claim, meaning he's putting his hand out and saying, this is mine, not just to the Jews, but to all mankind. And now he's not just putting his hand on Jerusalem, he's putting his hand on the earth, saying, not just the city is mine, everything on this planet is mine, and I'm going to take it back. Amen. I encourage you guys, if you, if you didn't have the chance to be here through all these series, each week we're kind of building um, on each other. And so if you miss the other weeks, uh, it's going to be a little bit difficult to keep up. I encourage you to, to watch those, those sermons and uh, check up on the notes. But this week, we are going to learn about something that most of us feel like we have a handle on, but I think we'll learn that we don't. And we've learned that Jesus, his role as Messiah, the chosen one to fulfill all the promises of God, We've learned Jesus' role as Lord and King, the one who's going to be king of all kings, the one who's going to rule the entire earth, all of creation, all the universe. And now we're going to learn about the king who saves, okay? Jesus' role as Savior. His, his name itself means Yahweh is salvation. That's what Jesus means. And so this morning we're going to learn about what it means for Jesus to be Savior and what it means to be saved. But for us to do that, there's so much Old Testament homework we have to do about understanding atonement, what's it mean when his blood was shed, why did he have to die? And so to save us all the trouble, we have a video. Let's watch a video. We all long for the world to be good, for people to live in peace, act with love and justice. But there's a problem. Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead, and we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice. Therefore, you know, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil, because they've also ruined the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust, there's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good. He should be the one to just get rid of all the evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. 
We have all contributed, and, and we keep doing it. And so this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, he'll have to get rid of us. And this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good that not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. So how is he going to do that? Well, early in the story of the Bible, we're introduced to this practice of animal sacrifice, which I know, it seems weird to us, but for the Israelites, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. So remember, I'm a contributor to the evil that's in the world. I should be removed. But God is allowing this animal's life to be a substitute. It's symbolically dying in my place. And the biblical word for this is atonement, which means to cover over someone's death. But there's a second part to this ritual. Remember, evil also causes this relational vandalism. And in the Bible, this idea is described as polluting or defiling the land and making it unclean. So the priest would symbolically wash away the vandalism by sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts of the temple. So the animal's blood is cleaning things? Well, remember, this is a symbol, and it's a symbol that we're not used to. The blood represents life. And the sprinkling of the blood is this representation of how God is cleaning away these indirect consequences of evil in their community. In the Bible, this process is called purification. And so the temple and the land now become a clean space where God and his people can live together in peace. So this ritual makes things right between Israel and God. And more than that, the Israelites experience God's love and his grace through these symbols. And by being forgiven, ideally, this would compel them to become people of love and grace too. Right, that's the ideal, but it wasn't always happening. Right. So the prophet Isaiah, for example, he talks a lot about this. He opens his book by saying that the continual sacrifices of the Israelites had become meaningless because they were also allowing great evil in their midst, ignoring the poor and the oppressed. Even the Israelite kings were distorting justice. But Isaiah looked forward to a day when a new king from the line of David would come and deal with evil, but in a surprising way. The king would become a servant. And not just serve, but also suffer and die for the evil committed by his own people. And his life would be offered as a sacrifice. And this is the promise Jesus believed he was fulfilling. He's the king of Israel suffering and dying on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself used Isaiah's words when he said that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom refers to his sacrifice of atonement. And so all over the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. It covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all of the evil and death in his world. But the New Testament authors also talk about Jesus' death as providing purification. And so we hear about Jesus' blood as a symbol of his life, having this ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in us and around us so we can now live at peace with God. So that's the meaning behind Jesus' death. But there's more to the story. Yeah, the New Testament makes this powerful claim that Jesus' death was not final. He rose from the dead. And so he's the sacrifice who broke the power of death and evil, which means that he lives on to offer his life to anyone who will accept it. He is the perfect sacrifice to which all the previous sacrifices were pointing all along. So because of Jesus, the early Christians stopped participating in the ritual of animal sacrifice. But they were given new rituals. There are two that Jesus taught his followers to perform. The first is called baptism. 
Just as Jesus died, so going into the water becomes this personal connection you now have to his death. And in coming out of the water, you, so to speak, come back to life with Jesus. So baptism is the sacred ritual that joins your story to Jesus' death and his resurrection. The second ritual is called the Lord's Supper, which is a reenactment of Jesus' last meal with his disciples, and he used bread and wine to portray his coming death as a sacrifice. And so now, followers of Jesus, they take the bread and the cup regularly to remember and to participate in the power of Jesus' death and in his life. So these rituals, they remind us of God's love and encourage us to live a life of love and grace. But they do more than that. They connect us to a new life source. The very power that brought Jesus back from the dead is the same power that can deal with the evil in our own lives and transform us into people who lead lives of love and peace. Okay, we have to talk about atonement here, okay? And it's very difficult for us to talk about sacrifice and animals and atonement because it's just such a foreign thing to us. Um, When's the last time that you went to the market to sacrifice an animal? Okay, a few of you, okay? I mean, and uh, blood itself is something that is extremely foreign to most of us. Um, we have some hunters in the room, some hunters, anybody? Okay, you know, when you, when you finally have that moment where you have to begin to bleed out the animal, there's something about that. I mean, and, and again, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but it is a very kind of a, for the first time for someone to be a part of that, okay? The first time that you have to be a part of seeing this blood leave this animal and you see the heat from the blood, and like you're realizing the life is being sucked from this animal. It, it, it's a very kind of a troubling moment. You know, I'm sure for, for most of you guys who are hunters, um, after a while it just kind of gets normal to you, you know. But th- there's something about the first time you see this that makes you just pull back and say, there's just something wrong with this. There's, there's something that's just not right about this. And so, you know, the entire idea of animal sacrifice, of blood being shed, it's this picture of, you know, the first sin we see in the scriptures in the Garden of Eden with the first Adam and Eve. What we see with them is, is this choice to rebel against God. And, and what really comes from that is that whenever they chose to rebel against God, they chose to align themselves with Satan and, and to allow everything he desired to come about to come about. And, and one of the things, the ultimate kind of price, if you would, of aligning ourselves with Satan is, is we allow not just sin into the world, but the consequence of sin, the ultimate fruit of this tree, which is death. And so we see that from this, this rebellion against God, this allegiance with Satan, what enters the world, what kind of sickens the world, it's almost like a virus enters not just humans from that moment forward, but the entire creation is this idea of death. And death was not something that was ever created or intended to be involved in us or this world. Things were not intended to decay or to fall apart, but they did because of us. And so this sacrifice of animal blood, it's this continual picture of the price of what takes place when we, when we choose to, to push ourselves, to separate ourselves from the source of life, which is God himself. The only true result of separating ourselves from life is death. 
And so this picture of what happens every time that there's that the sin, it's not that each sin was worth killing an animal. It was, it was this continual picture of the ultimate fruit that's being born and infecting the world through sin, which is death. And so every time that there was a sin that needed to be atoned for, they needed to be reminded of what they, what we had released into ourselves and into creation itself. And so that's why blood sacrifice is this nasty, ugly terrible thing that's supposed to to make us sick and to push back it's supposed to be so gruesome that it makes us see what true how would you put that what true ugliness and just perversion has come into creation whenever we chose to to break our relationship with God and so basically what what happens through all this is we have this deep understanding in the old testament of atonement and of the blood being shed and it's very crucial for us to have this because without this understanding what happened on the cross, it just doesn't make any sense to us. But uh, now that we have that, I hope this will make more sense. All right, we're going to come right back to atonement here in a second. But if you guys have your Bibles, go with me to Mark 11, verse 1. Mark 11, verse 1. So today is Palm Sunday. Amen? Are you guys excited about Palm Sunday? And most of us go, why are we supposed to be excited, right? Come on, be honest. Okay, we're a bunch of... Protestants in here, okay? Like, who knows what Palm Sunday is about, okay? All right. Palm Sunday is a big deal. And it's going to make sense to you now because of everything that we've been studying. But simply put, the reason Palm Sunday is such a big deal, okay, it is seven days before the cross, if you will. Well, seven days before the resurrection. And so what's going on here is we see Jesus, and he has been building up his entire life, basically all of human history, all of the scriptures, all of creation has been waiting for this virus, this sickness, this, this, this thing that's invaded man in the world to be made right. And here comes this person that now the Jews believe is going to make everything right. And he's been teaching about the kingdom of God. He's basically been, he's been proclaiming the good news that God is going to do what he's always promised. God is going to come and to make everything right again. Okay, he's going to come and to fix everything, to heal everything, to mend everything that's been broken, and to restore things to the way they should be. And so at this moment, because of his teachings, because of his signs and wonders, because of all these different signs of the Messiah from the Old Testament he's been fulfilling, there are people who are starting to believe that Jesus just might be the Messiah. And so what's going on here is for a few years he's been, he's been avoiding Jerusalem. He's been staying away from it. Because he knew that there's, there's a specific time when he is supposed to fulfill all of these different things. Basically, all of human history, all of creation, all of scripture was supposed to culminate in this one moment. He had been waiting until the proper time. And so now it's that time. And so in Jerusalem, they're about to, to celebrate the Passover celebration. You know, and it takes us all the way back to the Old Testament picture where they had to sacrifice the blood of these lambs. They had to put it over the doorpost of their homes and if they did that when the spirit of death would come into Egypt it would pass over their families they wouldn't have to you know suffer death are you seeing the connections here there's so many connections that it yeah see it I almost forgot about that thank you okay there's so many, there's so much going on here at the cross and in this section of scripture that we could study this for an entire year. We could. And this week, my brain has just been fried. I, uh, poor Nisa, I've been just kind of like going on all week. And, and, and so like, and this and this and this and this. And she's like, just talk about Jesus, Devin. <laughs> but there's so much going on here. There's so much, okay? So, but basically, 
what we see here is he is now on his march to the cross. And, and if you understand what it meant for, for the Messiah to, to come to take what was God's, to come to, to defeat the enemies, to heal sickness, to, to basically make everything perfect and right, this is a big moment. And now the people around him are starting to believe that he really is the the Messiah, the chosen one of God. If you guys have your Bibles, Mark 11, verse 1. We're going to go ahead and just read through this for about 10 verses. It says, so as they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here, and if anyone asks why you're doing this, say, the Lord needs it. And we'll send it back there shortly. Pause for a second. Now, there are two things. Remember, he is the Messiah. He's coming to, to fulfill this. But if you notice, he calls himself Lord in, in this moment. And, and so we see a connection between this animal he's about to ride and the title he has. So he's, he's, he's sending them to bring a colt, specifically this little donkey. Okay, But yet he has this, this, this title as Lord. Now, this is crucial. Okay, Because understand that in this moment in history... Kings and lords, okay, so Caesar, for example, when Rome would go to war and they would conquer a nation, they would conquer, you know, this other kingdom, what they would do is they would come back in victory. And so they'd come back with their armies and what they would do is this, this, this parade of power. And so the king would, would ride this huge monster war horse, okay, and his legions of soldiers and their banners of victory, they'd come in as a show of power and strength. What's interesting today in history, we still do this, okay? Um, North Korea still, you know, has these, these marches where they have their, their missiles and their soldiers come through, okay? Uh, the Russians used to do it. We've done it. Okay, it's still something that's happening. And so what he's doing here is he's proclaiming that he is coming not just to, to, to be the Messiah. He's coming to fill the role as king of the entire world. And in doing this, he's given us a first picture of what kind of reign he's going to have. He's not coming in on this war horse with power and might. He's coming in on a little donkey, a little colt. Are you seeing? See it? Okay. Here we go. Here we go. Okay. Uh, Verse uh, 6. They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, uh, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Now, we understand that these branches are palm branches. Palm Sunday, the branches that they're, they have these palm branches they're waving, palm branches that they're laying on the ground. Now, what's interesting about the palms is that, again, this is something that in this, in this society had been used for different things, but one of the deeper meanings of palms was peace. And so now you've got this king of the entire world, the savior of Israel and of creation, and the one who's going to rule everything, the one who's going to conquer every enemy, every king is going to bow down before him in his might and his power, but he's coming in on this donkey, and to not to swords and to spears and to shields, but to these symbols of what? Peace. See it? There you go. Okay. Here we go. And uh, verse 9. Those who went ahead and those who who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Stop right there. Now remember, normally to us, when you read that, you do what? Eh, just keep on reading, right? What does that mean? (laughs) The guy is coming, you know, in the kingdom of his father David. What does that mean? 
But as you guys know, we've just studied his role as Messiah, right? The chosen one who God promised in covenant to, to David would be a king to rule for all eternity in the family line of David. And so now it's not just proof of who Jesus is. It's proof that now people around him, the Jews specifically, are now seeing him as the fulfillment of this promise. They believe now he's the one who's going to free Israel. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus, uh, he, he entered the city, and I can't talk to you about what happens then. The rest of that's very loaded. We don't have time for that. But are you guys seeing what's going on Palm Sunday? Okay. Palm Sunday, each year we are, celebrating, we are, we are reminding ourselves of this triumphal entry. We are reminding ourselves of what Jesus was coming to accomplish. And also, in the same way that those people have their palm branches and they're celebrating the king who is coming to make everything right, we are still waiting in celebration for the king to return to finish the work of making everything right. Now do you see why Palm Sunday is supposed to be a big deal to us? It's not just the Sunday before Easter. Okay, it's a big deal to us. But if you don't understand the Old Testament scriptures, if you don't understand everything God's been doing since the, since the, the, uh, the beginning of time, it just kind of goes, yeah, Palm Sunday, it's spring break, <laughs> right? Okay, trust me. And <laughs> for everyone who got a chance to go out on spring break, I wish I could have too, right? Okay, I don't hold that against anybody. Okay, now let's understand what this means as, with him as Savior. I'm going to Fast forward a few days to basically to Good Friday. Good Friday is the day that we celebrate where Jesus, you know, he died. And of course, it's more of a lament. It's a serious time where we acknowledge what Jesus did and what he went through. Since we're not going to have a Good Friday service, we're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to talk about the cross and the crucifixion. Now, what's, what's very difficult for us in this is that in the gospel story, we've learned that the gospel is the good news of what God has done through Jesus. And in Jesus, as the Messiah, as the King of the entire world, and as also the Savior. Now, what's been difficult for us is most of us have always understood gospel as Jesus, as the Savior only. Agreed? Most of you, have you heard the gospel? To receive Jesus as Savior, right? To be saved, to, uh, you know, confess your sins, to receive him to your heart. That is the gospel most of us have been given. And while that is a crucial part of the gospel, we cannot fully understand how he saves us until we understand his roles as Messiah and King. And so this morning, we're going to unpack a little bit what happens on the cross. Why is this such an important moment for us to understand? Now, if you guys are, uh, have your notes, we are fast-forwarding a little bit to the cross, okay? And so here's what I want to talk about next, Okay. What did Jesus actually accomplish on the cross? Why is this so important for us to focus on, to celebrate? Here's the first thing. On the cross, Jesus, he identifies with us. Here's what this means. At the cross, God stands with us, immersed in the filth, pain, suffering, perversion, depravity, and hopelessness unleashed through sin. Now, let me make this a little bit more simple. Um, for Jesus to atone for your sins, okay, for him to pay the price, if he would, for sin, he did not need to suffer. Okay? In the video that you guys saw with the lamb who's being murdered and things, uh, uh, you know, for sin, he didn't, the lamb didn't have to suffer. Suffering was not part of atonement. Okay? Jesus could have just been murdered. He could have walked up and they could have cut his throat and it could have been over. Okay? But why did he suffer? Why was this a crucial part of what he came to do? Because he didn't just come to forgive us our sins. He didn't just come to pay the debt. There's other things Jesus is accomplishing. And here's the first thing he's accomplishing. 
Jesus is choosing not just to die for us, but to suffer for us. He, in his suffering, is, in essence, putting himself in the shoes of every human who's ever lived and who will ever live. He is going through every loss and pain and grief and hurt and disappointment and shame. He is, in essence, again, he is the only one who can say that he, ha- he knows exactly what it's like to be in your shoes. It's one thing for a God to come down and say, okay, you know, here's the price, it's paid. It's another for a God who doesn't have to do it at all to come and to go through every single step that we have to go through, to go through every pain, every tragedy, the nastiness, the ugliness of what's been unleashed on the earth, something that he didn't unleash, something that we unleashed, and to choose to go through it for one reason, that we would know that he understands. In essence, on the cross, Jesus is holding our hands. He's, he's holding the hand of, of every human who's ever lived and experienced any loss, pain, guilt, hurt, suffering, and death itself. He is, in essence, dying with us on the cross, suffering with us. Not just for us, he's suffering with us. And this is a crucial thing for you. If you've never understood what it's like to suffer, then this might not make sense. But if you've gone through anything that's difficult... When you're going through loss, you don't want someone to come and fix everything. You don't want someone to come tell you the answers. You don't want someone to come talk to you. You just want someone to be with you. You want to be around someone who knows what it's like to hurt and to to have loss and pain the way that you do. And so what's crucial on the cross that we see is that we have a God who's willing to not just fix everything and make everything pretty, but a God who's willing to be with us in the middle of the pain and the hurt and the suffering. Do you see it? Here's the next thing that we see on the cross, which is the one that we talk about the most. We talk about atonement. He atones for us. Uh, you know, we had the video. It's, it's the idea that the... In Genesis 3, oh, we get the first prophecy about the Messiah, about this man who would come to take the bite of the serpent. And so basically the consequence of aligning ourselves with Satan was the bite of the serpent. It wasn't sin. It was the consequence of sin, okay? The consequence of rebellion, of, of aligning ourselves with, with Satan wasn't sin because that was the sin. Choosing to, to rebel against God is sin itself. The consequence of that is death. And so we have this man who's coming to take the bite of the serpent for us so that no one else before or after would ever have to take the consequence of, of sin, which is death. And again, we're not talking about, you know, the death that, that we see right now. We're not talking about what happens if you were to have a heart attack and die. Now, what we're talking about is, is death to where you have no life after this life. He's coming to where you will have no end if you don't want an end. He's coming to take this fear that your life could end and you would never think, feel, speak, be spoken to, connect, relate, learn, touch, taste, smell. He's coming so that that will never be a reality for you if you don't want it. That the bite of the serpent, that death itself, he would take it upon himself so you never would have to. Amen? And the language used for this is ransomed. You know, it's, it's this idea of you have been, you've been taken away, you've been wrapped up in, in chains, and, you know, you've been kidnapped. And it's not just you. All of creation has been kidnapped from God. Um, And what happens here is sometimes with atonement, the picture we get when we say Jesus paid for our sins, it's as if he walks up with money. He's like, okay, here's the price. Okay, I take them. That's not how Jesus pays for our sins. What happens in ransoming 
is he comes up and he sees us tied up and he unties us and he allows himself to be bound in our place. He walks up to the table of atonement and who, the one laying on the table is us. He takes us off the table and lays down himself. Are you seeing this? In the line, the witch in the wardrobe, the line Aslan, is a picture of Jesus. And if you know the story, what happens here um, with Edmund is, you know, he's the one who's been captured with uh, the, uh, the white witch. He betrayed uh, his family and, you know, he joined the rebellion against Aslan. And so, you know, his punishment, you know, he, what he deserves is the table, the stone table. But of course, what Aslan does, he doesn't come in and say, oh, here's some money or here's whatever, I'll take him back. He says, here, take him off the table, I'll get on the table for him. Are you seeing it? Amen. Here's the next thing we see on the cross. He reconciles us, okay? It's this word we've been using a lot. It's this idea of making things right, but making things right in the sense of bringing things back together that have been separated. And so in the way that whenever we pulled back from God in the garden whenever we we rebelled and we chose to to break relationship with him and since then ourselves and all creation has been separated from God on the cross Jesus makes things right he brings everything back the way that God desired it to be made right now this is a very deep thing and it would take us weeks to to really unpack all of it and what it means and the, the holiness of God and the consequence of sin the nature of sin all these different things but simply put, in Jesus, everything is made whole again. In, in the picture we have of the bread, in his body literally being torn apart and being sacrificed for us, this picture of the bread being broken, okay, in his brokenness of his body, the body, meaning all of us, all of creation, all of the family of God who were broken are made one loaf again, are, are made whole and healed in him. This is the picture of the bread, that the body that was broken, that would actually bring healing for all of us. This is what it means whenever God reconciles us. And again, it's not just for us, it's for all creation. Fourth thing that we see at the cross, he, he fulfills covenant for us. Um, you know, we, we studied covenant whenever we are talking about the, the role of Jesus as Messiah. And, and so what happened here is... The first relationship, if you would, the first covenant that God and man had was his partnership in the garden. It was this nature of relationship, that he would be God, that we would be man, and that between us, you know, that we would have this trust, this relationship. And when that was broken, of course, we see everything that's happened since then. And so what's going on in, in Israel and in Abraham is he begins to pick out this person, Abraham. And he says, through you, through your faithfulness to me, I'm going to restore everyone who's been taken away from me through covenant this trust relationship but as we know from the old testament the jews were not able to do it david wasn't able to do it moses didn't do it abraham didn't do it on and on and on no one was able to fulfill their role of the covenant the covenant was this if if you would be faithful and obey me and then my promise is that i'll make everything right between us but none of them were able to keep the role of the covenant and so what god does this is amazing what God does is not only does he choose to keep his promise, but now he takes our role in the covenant and says, okay, you couldn't be faithful to me. You couldn't do your end of the bargain, but I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to pay the price of what happened whenever you messed up in the first place, and then I'm going to come on your side, and I'm going to fulfill your end of the relationship because you're not able to do it. 
and you're going to get all the blessings and all the promises I gave you, and I'm going to do all the hard work for you. Amen? I know we got issues up here, right? Searching. Beautiful. Here we go. The fifth thing that we see at the cross is purification. If you guys notice uh, in, in the video, there's that segment where like the priest, he's, he's walking around the temple with the blood and he's kind of spattering it, right? Okay. Loaded picture, but, but see that. Okay, this is going to be amazing. Okay. The temple, the, the tabernacle, you know, this tent that God told uh, the Israelites to build was always supposed to be a picture to where all these things in this temple were symbols of heaven and symbols of earth. In Genesis, okay, the first story of creation, the first temple you see, the first place where God comes to be worshipped and to interact with humans is creation, right? The earth, right? So the earth is what? The first temple. Agreed? The earth is the first temple. The tent is a picture now of the separation of heaven here and earth here, of this, this divide, right? Things are not reconciled. Things are separated. And so whenever the, the priest would come with the blood, he would sprinkle it. It was a picture of what Jesus was going to do in his blood. Meaning, as this priest was sprinkling this blood to purify, meaning a picture of making it right, preparing it for heaven and earth to meet again, for God and man to come back to the temple again. Jesus and his blood, his blood as it spills on the earth. And I love this picture. If you guys saw it in the video, there's a picture of the cross and like the pool of blood is kind of just kind of like running through the dirt. It's a picture not just of how God is purifying and reconciling, bringing us back to himself. It's a picture of what he's doing to all creation. He is, in essence, sprinkling his blood over what is going to be the new temple of God. He is preparing his people in this place for the presence of God to return to the earth. See it? And if we don't know the Old Testament... If we don't understand atonement, we don't understand the Messiah, we don't understand the covenants and the promises, we miss all of this. And the cross just becomes about me and my sins and how terrible I am. It doesn't become about God coming to do everything I couldn't do, to take the blame of everything, to heal and mend not just me, but my family, everyone around me, and the entire place that I call home, he's going to make it right in himself. There's much more happening on the cross than just that. But here is how it does affect us. When we hear this news of what God is doing, he is healing and reconciling and bringing everything back to himself. We are given a choice. Do we want to allow him to reconcile us? Do we want to allow ourselves to be a part of what God is doing? Would you guys stay with me?